I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hi folks, before we get started with this week's episode of Creek Devil, I wanted to make some announcements about changes we're making in the show. Uh, we've had people ask us many times if we could break the show up a little bit in smaller pieces. So, in accordance with those wishes, and I know some people like the three-hour format, but we're getting a lot of requests about making shorter pieces. So what we're going to do is, on Saturdays, we're going to have the witness interview. It'll be an hour show. On Tuesdays, we'll do the Bigfoot questions and answers. And on Thursday, we're going to have the Bigfoot History episode. So, having said that, folks, that's going to be our format. If you have any questions or comments, get a hold of us and let us know what you think. So, having said that, let's get on with this week's show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Tom, would you like to introduce our guest today? Yes, absolutely. We've got Tate with us today from the southeast, and uh, Tate's down in Georgia, and you're going to want to stick around for this one. This is a really good, uh, as I explained to Will just a moment ago, this is kind of the reason we are fascinated with Bigfoot in history, because this has a chronology going all the way back into time through a couple generations, two or three generations here. Um, but before we do that, I want to say that if you enjoy the show, let us know. Click the like, subscribe, and share button. And if you want to support the show, you can do so. We have a link to Patreon in the description. All right, so I'm going to bring our guest on. This is Tate. Tate, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing pretty good, gentlemen. All right. Good to hear from you. And uh, you and I had a really good chat the other day. So yep. let's do this. We'll start off with your encounter, and we're just going to work our way back through the stuff that, that goes back into history, into your family's history. Okay. So, uh, my first encounter um, was the most, and the most, re or my second encounter, and the most recent encounter was down here in the southeastern part of Georgia, uh, closer to the coast. Um, we were fishing on a river called the Little Satella, and it's very swampy, very small. Uh, some parts of it is only six to eight foot across. Very small. You know, most people would consider it a creek. Um, but it is considered a river down here. And it was me, my mother, um, my younger sister, who was nine at the time, and a very good friend of mine. We were doing some night fishing. And it was around, we had been out there from probably right at dusk all the way through till about, I'd say 1130 to midnight. And... I've heard in y'all's podcast before, whenever uh, these things come around, everything gets super quiet, super silent. It happens a lot of times with, with predators in general. Um, the smaller animals, the smaller insects and frogs, things like that, they just go silent. 
Well, it wasn't only that, but it also got this feeling, and I wasn't the only one. My mother had the feeling, and my friend that was with me had the feeling as well. Uh, my sister at the time was already asleep, and we had put her in the cab of the truck. And I looked over at my mom, and I was like, All right, hey, I think we need to go ahead and pack this up. You know, something ain't right, something ain't feeling right. We need to go ahead and pack up and head out of here. And we all agreed. So uh, I was standing in the back of the truck, um, and I had a taller truck. It was uh, on, a, on a small lift kit. Um, and right behind our truck, off to the side, there are what we have down here, the palmetto bushes is what we call them. But they're, you know, they've got fan-like uh, leaves on them, and they're super big. They fan out there, and they're just super wide, and they grow very big. This one was probably about six foot tall, eight foot wide. I mean, it was a large palmetto bush. And keep in mind, we were, the closest town was probably two to five miles, six, seven miles away from where we were. So, I mean, it was a pretty good distance. We were out there in the woods, woods. Um, and actually speaking to my mother the other night, she was saying that she was talking to one of her friends about it because I brought it up to her uh, before I talked to you guys. And she was saying that her friend told her that a lot of stuff happens out on this river when people go out there. And it's a lot of stuff that they can't explain. Uh, but back to the story. Tate, I'm going to interrupt uh, was, for just a second, but I want you to get back to the story, so so don't lose your train of thought. But okay. um, did you get any specific examples? Did they say, what are some of the unexplained things that happen on the river? Because obviously this is something that has caught people's attention that live in that area. That this They know what the norm is. Something happens outside of the norm. Uh, I'm just curious to know if, if you've got any specific examples. Well, they didn't really go into very much detail about it because down in the South and most people who live in the South will say that, and even where y'all are at, you know, in small communities, stuff like this really isn't spoken about um, because you don't want to, you don't want to draw attention to that kind of stuff. It's kind of like a, it's a big rumor. Yeah, it's a big rumor fest down here. So, um, you know, he said, she said, and oh, bless your heart kind of thing, uh, which is a whole oxymoron in itself um but a lot of people don't really speak on it but from what this person said uh it was some very unexplainable things that just things that you don't typically see is the way that they put it uh is the okay. way that he put it yeah just no, things that's, that, that's fine yeah, yeah it's, so, it's, so in other words it's something you know what the norm is. You know what the expectations are when you're out in the area. And this is something that falls outside of that scope, the norm. Exactly. Uh, yeah, okay. All right. Yeah, go ahead. All right. Okay. So I'm loading the truck up. I had a spot. I had a little headlamp on my head. And I was loading the tackle box, fishing around, and all that good stuff, cooler, back in the truck, uh, trapping it down. And I just so happened to turn because I just the hair on the back of my neck stood up. And I was like, ooh. So I turned, and when I turned, I saw something, and I, for the longest time, I just kind of blocked it out, um, and just was like, oh, you know, it must have been a panther or something. But 
I was, the reason that I, that I actually called in was because listening to y'all's podcast, there's a story, there are stories that y'all do. And it was the camp counselor that, um, shined a flashlight on this thing when he walked out of the cabin and it had like, uh, it had yellow eyes, yellow reflective eyes. Well, when I, when the light hit it, when it reflected off of its eyes, they were like, uh, they were yellow and they were the size of half dollars. Now, down here, I'm, I'm an experienced hunter. I am an avid outdoorsman. I fish. I've spent weeks on end on this same river out in the woods by myself at young age, at a young age. I'm talking about 15, 16 years old, just out here by myself. You know, I, I, I am not afraid of the woods. I love being in nature. I love watching everything about nature. And I have never seen something with that big of eyes. And that, I mean, just the reflection. And keep in mind, these eyes were at the top of this palmetto bush, and that thing was six, around six foot high. And it was looking at me through the the tops of the palmetto bush, through the fronds on the on the ends of the palmetto bush. We have black bears down here. The only problem is black bears do not have yellow eyes. Panthers don't stand up on their hind feet, and they're not that big down here. Some people don't even believe we have them down here. So. That was something that I, that when, when I saw it, I couldn't explain it, but I, I was like, Oh, super loud. Everybody turned around. But by the time they turned around, it was gone. It was gone. And needless to say, uh, we left gone. There was no, we didn't hesitate. I stayed, I, I sat down in the back of the truck. I said, let's go. And I stayed in the back of the truck until we got to the nearest town. And that's when we stopped and we're like, they were like, what's wrong? And I was like, I don't know what I just saw. I don't know what it was. I have an idea now of what it was, but I don't, but at that time, I didn't know. And I mean, you've heard, I've heard stories. We'll get into that um, later on, but now these weren't like so i was telling tom deer have reflective green eyes dogs have bluish colored eyes in reflection dogs coyotes panthers have like an orange color like a dark orange hogs they have a dark orange or a uh no i'm sorry they have a green reflection there i don't there's nothing down here that have yellow reflective eye you know i'm just going to jump in real quick um milo who's will's friend <clears throat> and he's on our q a uh quite a bit i was just noticing the similarities striking similarities between your what you saw and what milo saw back in the 70s uh milo looked back and he saw these 
huge glowing yellow eyes peering at him over the top of a tent. And I believe the tent was six or seven feet tall. And he yelled something that we're not going to repeat on this show, <laughs> but he yelled and, and immediately it disappeared. And, and I just got to say that the similarities really strike me with your situation and Milo's and many, many others that we've heard very, very similar that, you know, people suddenly realize, Hey, I'm, this thing is huge. It's looking at me. It's it's and for a frame of reference, you know, you you've got you know, a tent or palmetto bush. Uh, sometimes you have a, a huge rock, that sort of thing. And so it's. I, I guess what I'm saying is that it's kind of a repeating pattern with these things. So you're in good company. Yeah. You know, I'll I'll let you continue. Just real quick, the more that I look into these things the more that I realize, and these things are curious and they're very attentive to the situations that they're in. If they weren't, they wouldn't be around this long. I mean, you've got, you've got stories from Native Americans that date back to the 1800s and even before that in their, in their, in their stories that they told. So being curious and being attentive to the situation that you're in helps you survive. And I believe that they watch us to learn not only our habits, but how to stay safe and not be seen and not be, and not be cornered and not be found. Well, you're, you're right. They do. We we're, we, I think people are, under observation a lot far more than they may realize. Okay, so you saw the creature, you see the eyes, you yelled. Everybody turns around, they take a look at gone, it's gone. Then what happens? Well, that's when we left. And looking back on it now, I was telling you that the more that I thought about it, I did see on kind of on where one of the V's came down on top of the palmetto bush, I could see, like, it looked like, so behind the palmetto bush was like a creek bottom from where the river floods and it turns into, like, a little dead lake where the water gets caught. So there was, it was just, the river was low at this point, so it was just all black dirt. There was no, you know, leaves on, there were leaves on the ground, but it was, like, oak tree leaves and things like that. But this was, like, a, I thought I saw pine needles at first, but then there are no there were no pine trees above where this palmetto bush was, so I could immediately rule out that it was like pine straw stuck on the palmetto bush. I think it was its fur, and it was like a the color of pine straw, like a orange or like a like a rust red, um, almost brown color, like a you know like the color of pine straw, but. From then, or from there, you know, we just kind of, I just kind of wrote it off. And then that, that kind of summed up that encounter for me, that, that first encounter or that most recent encounter um, at that point. Cause I, I didn't realize that they were down here at that, at that point. But then when I saw that, I was like, okay, yeah, they are. Um, 
And then that was the most recent encounter that I had. Let me ask you this. Did, um, did you guys talk about it on the way home or have you talked about it since? And what was the sense yeah. that you're, you know, the other people that were with you? And I take it your little sister was, she was sleeping in the truck. Yes. So she, she didn't see it. Okay. So what was the conversation no. like going home? Well, we were kind of, when we stopped and I got in the truck, finally got in the truck to uh, drive home, um, we kind of sat there in silence for a little bit. And then, you know, the guy, my, my friend that was with me, he was like, what did you see? And I told him, I said, yeah, I can't, I don't know. I saw eyes that weren't the color of any animal that we have here in the state. And they were huge. And he was like, you don't think it was like a coyote or something? I was like, no. There's no way it was a coyote. It's just too big. The eyes were too large. It in itself was too big. There's no way that there's a coyote big enough to take up a, to, to be able to look over the top, basically over the top of a six foot tall palmetto bush. There's just no possible way. So we sat there and we talked about it for a little bit. And that's, he brought it up first. He was like, do you think it was the Sasquatch? And I was like, <laughs> I don't know. And he was joking. But deep down, I'm thinking to myself, it might have been, you know. But well, the other thing is, why being, he may come off as joking, but the real question is, why that question? Why did he ask the question? Exactly. So I'm thinking he may have thought it was something like that too. But, and my mom. My mom knew all the stories from my family, so she was quiet, and she didn't want to bring it up because they didn't talk about it. That's not something that they talked about. You know, she knew the story about my grandfather, about my great-great-grandmother and my great-great-uncle and the encounters that they had. She knew about that. She knew about the stories from back in their hometown on the other side of the state, but she didn't want to bring that up over here. Or to me. But later on, she was like, Yeah, maybe sometime you should you should talk to your papa about it, which is my grandfather. Um, and talk to him about it and see what he says. Um but other than that, it was a pretty quiet ride home. You know, we didn't really it scared us all. It scared all of us. My buddy, my buddy at the time, he was 6'3 and 250, 260. He was the first one in the truck. There was no hesitation. He, it looked like he just levitated into the truck and was ready to go. So cause it was, he was standing between the palmetto bush and the truck. So he was the closest one to it. Um, <laughs> and he like almost levitated into the truck and, and we were gone. So, um, but that was pretty much the the most recent encounter that I had. And um, 
Would you like me to go into my second one? Oh, absolutely. Yes, please do. Okay, so the one after that, I was in North Carolina in the Great Smoky Mountains, which is part of the Appalachian Trail. I know that the mount, that mountain range comes up on y'all show a lot. Um, I was sorry, I lost train of thought. Anyway, um, I was fishing. I fly fish, and I was where we had a camper at was way out in the woods. It was back in a small hollow back in the woods, you know, there there were people, but they were pretty spread out. And I was probably a mile downriver fly fishing, you know, saw trees around me. There were, you know, and the, the rivers there in North Carolina, there's, there's mostly rock next to the river. It's not like sand, there's sand underneath the rock, but the whole top layer next to the river itself is just straight it's just straight rock like it's just pebbles and stones uh, and what i thought was odd when i was walking down river was there was a patch next to the river on the riverbank that was just all sand it was just all sand it was like a sandbar just in this one spot and just rock on this side rock on this side and just straight sand in this area like there were no pebbles there were no small, medium-sized rocks, nothing like that, just sand, which I thought, you know, was odd for that area because it's all rocks. You know, I just walked a mile into a mile down river, and I was walking over rocks and almost twisting ankles and all, all that stuff. So I looked up, and, and the branch, there were no branches either in that area. There were trees, but there were no branches. So I was like, this is like a perfect spot to fly fish because I was fly fishing. And I was probably standing there, you know, 30 minutes. I'd caught a couple small trout, rainbows, brown trout, stuff like that. And I was pretty, I was pretty, con I was concentrating pretty hard. Well, like it was just straight bank behind me and it was all leaves and uh, dirt. There was no major rocks or anything like that uh, but up the bank from me. And as I was fishing, I hear a crashing noise. And I go to turn and a rock the size of a basketball comes flying through the trees, hits the, there was like a, almost like a step up that was like a dirt step up from there. It was probably about up to my waist, hits that and then bounces and lands probably two foot from where I'm standing, fly fishing. And I just kind of stand there and I freeze and I'm looking and I'm like, where did that come from? Because like I said before, it was all trees and leaves behind me. There was no rocks of that size up that bank behind me. Hey, did you get a sense of how the distance this thing traveled, you know, where it came from, like, yards feet how, anything like that i'd say when i heard the first crash of a leaf or of a, of a of a tree limb and looked up and saw it coming towards me 
it was probably it had it had already hit its peak. So it's not it, it had already hit its peak in the throat. So it was probably at that point fifteen feet away from me. Fifteen to twenty feet away. So looking looking at it and then it hit the little embankment up at, that was my at my waist and then hit the sand. So I'm thinking probably if it was already at its peak and getting ready to start coming downwards, I'm thinking probably 30 feet away. At, you know, throw like as an overhand throw. Yeah. So 30, 35 feet, something like that. I mean, this and is a basketball size rock. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I, and, you know, you can look it up online. You can go to rock quarries and you know, just kind of come up with a guesstimate of what a basketball-sized rock is going to weigh. But, uh, you know, I I couldn't – I could barely pick it up, let alone throw it a foot. Right. Right. I mean, so needless to say, I left. There was no let me pack up. Nope, I reeled in, and I was just walking. I left – yeah, I, I, I threw a fish back and just took off. There was no, uh, I was gone. I called, I actually called my grandfather uh, to come and pick me up so that I didn't have to walk all the way back or speed, speed walk all the way back up river. So he came to me and when, when he got to me, I told him what happened. He was like, son, I'm glad you called me when you did. So I didn't tell, I forgot to tell you this the other day, Tom. As we were driving back, we were going pretty slow trying to see where this rock could have came from as we drove back by. Because we, we, he turned around and he was like, nah, let's go. I want to see if there's anywhere, you know, he was he was curious. I didn't want to go back. He wanted to. Um, we drove back through and as we were driving back through, we were going super slow. We heard whistling. We heard some something whistling. Somebody, something. Uh, we heard a whistling, like it was like a. You know, you can tell when somebody's mimicking a bird. You can tell the difference between a regular bird call. I mean, if somebody's not going to say not good at it, but you can tell when they're trying to mimic a bird call compared to a bird actually making the noise. It's got a it's it's louder than a than you would see from a bird than you would hear from a bird uh that was that was kind of my question is what when you say whistling i'm assuming it's not whistling a tune it's uh so you said it's like trying to mimic some kind trying of a to bird? mimic a bird okay yeah trying to mimic a, a bird um but it was too loud so it sounded like somebody was down there in a creek in, in the down by the river trying to mimic a bird call and i'm like you know at this point i i'm it i, I was scared you know I'm, I'm i think i was 15 at the time maybe 16 so i i'm freaking out because I already had a rock thrown at me and then somebody's down there whistling and I'm like, 
I could not comprehend what was happening, what had happened, how that happened. You know, why is somebody down there trying? You could tell it was somebody, but you could tell it was. I'm not. I'm not going to say it was a person. Because why would there be a person this far away, this far out? You know, unless somebody else is fishing. But even still, like you said, who? I mean, unless you're super strong, you're not going to pick up a basketball-sized rock and throw it 35 feet. And again, how close? How close to that rock land to you? Again, I think you said the other day. a foot and two foot from me. Yeah. I mean, it was close. That's it a foot too close. close. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It was. It was too close for comfort. Let's put it that way. You know, and I understand rock. You know, rock slides and things like that happen up there all the time. There's a, they get a lot of rain up there in that area. Like I said, I was up in the I was up in the Smokies, part of the you know Blue Ridge and the Appalachian Trail. Excuse me. So. And, you know, I, and I'm very familiar with that area. Like I used to go up there every summer as a kid and as a teenager, I would be up there every summer for, you know, weeks, two weeks at a time. And I got, I grew to become very familiar with this area. I mean, they have elk up there. They have bears up there, but I can't, I can't explain the whistling and that, and that rock being thrown you know, that's, and you could tell it got thrown. So it, it was thrown through the air. There was no way that it could catch that much air rolling down a hill. There's, it just doesn't happen like that. You know, not where, not with the way that terrain was. It, there was, and on top of that, there was another part of a part of the river. As, so when it floods, in that area there's the bank and then behind that there's also a little where the river runs when it floods so there's another dry creek bottom on the other side of where i was at so it's not going to take a roll from the top of this hill and have enough momentum to come down and then launch itself it's not that's not going to happen you know so something's through it Something deliberately threw a basketball-sized rock at me. And then the whistling afterwards. <laughs> and I'm not the only one that heard it. My grandfather heard it, too. My grandfather heard the same whistling I did. We just kind of looked at each other. And we were like, somebody's whistling. And that's when he said, I don't think it's somebody, son. I was like, okay. Yeah, so that was that my was, question. So, so this is the same granddad that he has his own experience. Account. Okay, all right. Mm-hmm. So, so he knows things. Okay, exactly. So there was a story that I didn't get to tell you the other day um, about my uncle and his and our cousin. Uh, so a little bit of a pretext. My grandfather's family owned a lot of property, a lot of farmland between his cousins and his, you know, I was telling you, Tom, the other day that uh, there was 11, I believe it was like 11 brothers and sisters between the family. 
there was a bunch of cousins, a bunch of kinfolk in that area. And it was all family. And this is over in Southwest Georgia, uh, between Valdosta, um, between Valdosta, Albany, Columbus area. Um, so there's a lot of farmland out there. That's all it is. It's just farmland and trees and it's, it's more built up now, but back in those, back in the day, it was just all farm. And so my uncle and, and my cousin, this was, I would say, I think back in the 80s, like early 90s, I believe is when it was. Uh, don't hold me to that, but I know it was around that time. Um, they went hunting on the property out there. And there was a swamp that they were in. And my uncle and my cousin were like, okay, we're going to split up. I'm going to go to one side of the swamp. You go to the other side of the swamp. We'll catch anything either coming out each side. Or we'll catch a deer coming out each side or as they're coming in from the cornfields. So from the time they got there and split off from each other, because they, so they walked in to the swamp and then instead of going directly in and then going to each side, they walked around the edge and then they had their tree climbers with them. They found them a good tree and climbed up. And both of them told me this before my uncle passed away. From the second they split up, they felt like they were being followed. And my uncle was like, why is he, why is he following me? I thought we had agreed we were going to either side of the swamp. Said, why is he following me? And my cousin thought the same thing about my uncle. He could hear somebody. They could both hear someone walking in step with them. And when they would stop, it would stop. At the same time, at the same time on both sides of the swamp, on opposite ends, the entire time they were in the tree stand, they felt like they were being watched to the point to where they left probably about about 45 minutes before dusk. And that's like prime hunting time for when the deer are coming back in out of the field to bed down. That's prime hunting time. And it scared them so bad that they both got it. They both climbed down and came back to the truck. And my cousin had gotten there before my uncle did. And he was like, why did you follow me? And my uncle was like, I was going to ask you the same question. He was like, no, I went to the other side. They, this, this was before they had cell phones. So they couldn't text each other and be like, hey, why are you following me? They couldn't do that. So... You know, they got to talking about it. They were like, what is going on? You know, and they left, went back to the house, and they never really spoke of it again until my uncle was talking to me about it. And my cousin was like, yeah, that happened. And it scared, it, you know, it, it kind of made us both uneasy. But they said the entire time that they were up in the tree stand that they felt like they were being watched. They couldn't see anything. They couldn't hear anything, but they sure enough, like you could feel, they said they could feel the hair standing up on the back of their necks. And it was a constant feeling the entire time they were in the stand to the point where they left. Both of them. So, I mean, like, and that kind of goes back to these creatures are inquisitive. 
They're going to watch it. And I apologize. I know. I think you already said this was. Was this in the nineties? You said, or what? When did this happen? Uh, I I believe it was around. I believe my uncle said it was around the nineties, but it could have been like the early nineties. But it was well. You know, they didn't have they didn't have cell phones, so they couldn't. You know, it's not like today where you you know if you're hunting with a buddy, you can be like, hey. You see anything over there? That you can't. You could. That was way before that time. So I'm thinking. Seventies, eighties. So yeah, it was. It was in the early nineties. Yeah. This was the early nineties, late late eighties. I'd say probably you know late eighties to early nineties. So, but I mean, two people. Going in on opposite sides of a of a of a, of a hunting area, feeling the same feeling at the same exact time that they're going to opposite ends. That's just if you want to talk about coyotes, coyotes are pack hunters. Coyotes are pack hunters. Okay, they're going to hunt the pack. They're not going to stalk you. They're not going to follow you. They make too much noise. Panthers. I mean, there are pair, there are pairs, but most of the ones that you see are solitary. So, boars, they're not gonna, they're not like you know, they're omnivores, but they're not gonna, they're not gonna stalk you like that. They're not gonna stop when you stop, move when you move. They're not gonna do that. So, it just leads to another question of, well. You know, could it have been? Could it have been this? Could it have been Bigfoot? Could it have been a pair that was watching, making sure that they didn't come too far in there? What would have happened if they would have went too far in? I mean, there's a lot of questions behind that. So um, that's that was the story I didn't get to tell you the other day. No, that's a that's a good one. And, and again, I just want to say that there's a there's a kind of a progression here going back into time. Showing the the precedence of the creatures, you know, certainly with your I mean, family and within this area. Right. You know, and and. It, it keeps going back. I mean, you know, these, these are stories that people don't want to. That, that people, I mean, I'm sure that there are way more people in my area that have had things like this, but they haven't put two and two together. You know, they haven't said, well, what if it could have been? Or they just don't want to speak out on it because they don't want to get looked at sideways. Like, what is wrong with him? You know? But moving a little farther back, this was in the 19, 1950s. My, my grandfather was around nine years old. And I told you that my grandfather's family had a lot of property. Around them, they had, you know, cornfields. And there were two creeks that ran around this property. There was a cornfield directly between the two of them. There was one right next to my great-great-grandmother's house, ran next to it. And then there was a cornfield, and on the other side of that cornfield, kind of running with the transom road, was another creek. It was slightly larger. 
and my grandfather, he hunted birds, dove, quail. He used to go hunting for birds all the time when he was younger. And he had a bird dog with him. He had gone around the corner. He had gone, he had crossed the first creek, gone around the cornfield, and then had gone down into the second creek and was kind of walking along the creek and came to a little kind of like a sand bar in the middle of the creek and then the creek forked. And it was kind of out on a point at this creek and it forked off. Well, he had been sitting there for a few minutes kind of figuring out which way he was going to go. You know, he was just a kid. He wasn't thinking about anything like that. You know, he'd done this a million times. And his dog all of a sudden got super scared and took off running the other direction. Now, this dog went everywhere with him. So when it took off running, he kind of stopped was like, where are you, you know, he, he had, where are you going? And then as he turned back around, he heard a crashing noise. And about a four foot long, I'd say about 14, 15 inches around, separate cut piece of cypress tree, like log cut sawed piece of cypress come flying through the air and landed in the creek in front of him, probably about six foot away. And my grandfather is an evangelist. He is a, he, he's a preacher. Um, he, when he was telling me this, he, he does like to cut up a little bit, but he was as serious as serious could be when he was telling me this. I'm, you could see that he was looking back on a memory on a very important memory to him. So he looked at me, he said, son, he said, there is, there was no one in that I knew that my family knew that anyone knew that could pick up a piece of log that large and throw it. He said, and it's all flat ground. He was in a Creek. It's all flat ground. He said, this thing came flying through the air. I'm talking about, through the trees and through the air and landed about six foot in front of him in the creek. He had a little old Daisy Red Rider BB gun that he was carrying with him. And he made it a point to say this. He took that Daisy Red Rider BB gun and he just emptied it into them trees, scared to death. Nothing else happened. He kind of backed up and nothing else. There was nothing else happened. It's just that tree came flying through the air or that cypress log come flying through the air, hit hit in front of him, and he did all that, and then he took off running for home. He left. Gone. This was, I would say, this was 1957 when this happened. And this was in 1957. Yeah, 1957. So 1957 to 1958, somewhere in there. And he was he was he was extremely serious about this. You could tell that this was a uh, like I said before, this was a memory that he was looking back on. That he and he said he I don't he, son I don't know how to explain it. He said, I don't, he said, to this day, I don't know what it was. He said, but I know nobody could have done it. 
that was you know, I love, me. You and I talked about it, and I got to tell you, I love that story. Don't ever, don't ever uh, underestimate the power of a Red Rider or Daisy BB gun. <laughs> you know, I don't know if it did any good or not, but you know what? Uh, hey, he's he, he, he tried. You know, he was defending himself. It. He was defending himself as best he could. You know, uh, racking that little old lever, trying to get to send them in there, sending them into the tree. Just sprayed that whole area with them little BBs. So. <laughs> even in a serious moment, he still even in a serious moment like that, he still tries to um he still tries to bring small amounts of humor into that. You know, I guess that's a I'm not gonna say it's a coping mechanism, but I think it kinda helps him say, Well, you know No, that 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 I gotta tell you, that's my favorite part of that story. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean we we I think we have a pretty good idea with we have an excellent idea what through that cypress log exactly. or cypress stump at him but I mean, the fact that he retaliated with a with a daisy bb <laughs> gun there you go yeah so i mean that that's uh that was his story and that's and to this day i mean he still he still we talk about it you know we talk about my stuff that's happened we talk about the, the other things that he, you know, he's told me and the, uh, the, his story. Um, and it, I mean, there's a lot of, this, this is the kind of stuff that was told around campfires and told to the kids when they were younger to say, you know, you got to be careful out here. There are things out here that we can't explain. You know, there are things out here. And it's not just the things that you know that you know are there that you have to worry about. It's the things that you don't know about that you don't know are there that you have to worry about. And like y'all were saying on the podcast the other day, people have people have this idea of nature as okay. Let me go hiking and take all these pretty pictures for Instagram and get out here and you know. You never know what's behind you, especially down here. There's a lot of dangerous things in my state, a lot of dangerous things, snakes, spiders, bears, coyotes, panthers, sasquatch, that you don't know is there. But you're going to come out here. You know, people think that they have a handle on nature. Nature is unpredictable. You never know what's going to happen. So... I don't, I don't like the, the, I go and do it, but I also know the risks of going and doing that kind of, th- that kind of stuff. So, but I'm sorry, I got off topic. Um, now back to the early fifties, into the early fifties, my grandfather was probably, this was well, no, this was my great, great grandmother. This was in the, I would say, around the 40s, somewhere in there. Back in the day, they didn't actually have, they washed their dishes in a dishwashing tub. And every night after dinner, my great-great-grandmother would take the dishwater and she would step out on the back porch, she would dump it and come back inside. Well, In this backyard, 
there is a live oak tree. And I was telling you, Tom, the other day that these live, this live oak is massive. You can't wrap your arms around it. You can't. It's huge. I'd say it's probably around 200 year old, somewhere in there. I mean, it's old, old oak tree. And from where she was at standing on the back porch, she said she looked up and saw this creature standing by the oak tree. And she could see both sides of it. When she flipped the light on, it took off running. And as it took off running, it took about three strides and was around the side of the house. She said it was bigger than any person that she knew in that area. She said it was huge, tall. And I mean, as I told you the other day, Tom, my great great grandmother was four foot nine. She's a little old woman. Everybody was tall to her, but she said this was taller than everybody else in that area. Big, big old. Didn't you say she um, she grabbed her shotgun and racked a shell? She did. She did. She grabbed the double barrel twelve gauge and brought it around out the back door and was standing on the back porch, all four foot nine and everything, just standing there. You know, so she she did and. She would tell my grandfather this story, both of his sisters, this story. And my great-great-grandfather was uh, was already away, so he didn't actually see it. But she, you know, when she grabbed the shotgun, he saw it, and he come running. But by that time, she said it took three steps, and it, it went about 50 feet in three strides. So this thing was huge. She said it was dark. She said it was so dark that you, she could see how dark it was. At nighttime, it was darker than the it was darker than the than the nighttime outside. So she could see the silhouette, basically, of this thing. And as it took three steps and passed the corner of the house, went through the creek that ran next to the house and out into the cornfield, and was gone. Now, fifty feet in three steps—that's pretty in three strides. Think about the, I mean, relative to height. I mean, this thing is massive. If it can move that fast and go that far in three steps. So, and my grandfather believes that was a Bigfoot. He does. And that was her story that she would tell back then. This was in the 40s, late, you know, late 40s to early 50s in that area. Tate, you said this was, was this was also in Georgia, is that right? This was. This is over on the western okay. side of the state. So Albany, uh, Albany area, Valdosta area, kind of in between all that uh, area, closer to the to the southwestern side of the state. Now. I remember that uh, I got the name of that river, by the way, that I, I was having trouble with the other day. So the Oclotney River is over on that side of the state. And back in this was, I think, 40s to 30s time frame. My great great uncle used to take used, uh, a lot of people around that time had wagons with mules easier than driving cars to just go, you know, they would load the wagons up with, uh, with 
uh, vegetables, corn, tobacco, stuff like that. And they would also use them to go farm other, you know, help people pick and farm on, on the other property. A lot of sharing back in the day, back in those days. And they would always go across the river. Well, there was three different sections of this river that they had to cross that had a single drive wooden bridges. And they were pretty long, but he would always tell, uh, he would always tell my grandfather and, and children whenever they would go across that single panel bridge or that single track bridge, they could feel something step onto the back of the wagon, go across the bridge. Once they got to the other side, they could feel it step off. Going one way, going the other way, it would step back onto the wagon, go across the bridge, step back off again, back on the other side. And it would only do it would this would only happen when it was one wagon. It was it was a single wagon. Only time it would happen. Now and my and my great great uncle said he would never turn around. None of them would. This happened to multiple people. This would happen to multiple people that would travel this bridge. Happened all the time. Multiple accounts because I spoke to my grandfather about it, and he said that our great-great-uncle, or my great-great-uncle, was not the only one that had said something about this. Multiple people had this encounter of the same thing every time. And we're talking about wagons, right? I was telling Tom the other day that those wagons, the, the springs on those wagons were, I mean, they were strong. And for something to step up on the back of it and cause the wagon to dip, and somebody actually feel it, step on and the wagon dip down, whatever, he said he'd never turn around because whatever it was was big enough for him not to turn around and look at it. So that's that that story, that's the farthest back of my family's encounters that they've had that I've talked to my grandfather and, and other people about on that side. So... Yeah, and I think that's kind of new information when we talked the other day, um, and, and you may have said this, but it wasn't just um, your relatives that this happened to. This no. just happened to other people. Yes, it did, because when I was speaking to my grandfather about it, he was like, when I asked him, I was like, was it only our uncle? He was like, no. He said other people felt this, too. He said it was multiple people from around the community said this. And were and would and, and you know when they would be out there working or you know they would have the neighbors over for dinner some nights they'd talk about stuff like that you know behind closed doors of course but they would talk about it you know because apparently my great great uncle was not afraid to start this conversation this uh, this one in particular according to Gordon and my grandfather, he was not afraid to start that conversation. So it was multiple people that had said this. It wasn't just him. So yeah, I, I, I made a note to clear that up whenever I talked to you. So that was multiple witnesses that had that same that had that same encounter as well. Yeah, that's so, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. You get you get uh, you know kind of corroborating witnesses on the same corroborating stories. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, but those are my stories. Um, Let me ask you this. Are there, have you heard any, and I, I sounds like people are kind of, you know, a little bit uh, guarded to talk about their uh, encounters, but have you heard anybody else that has, um, is, is there any discussion or is there any, any kind of indication that other people outside of your family have uh, had some issues with these things? Um, not so much anybody outside of my family. I don't really, not that I'm aware of. I mean, I think that it should be talked about more down here, but so many people, I wouldn't say necessarily afraid to come forward, but to actually talk about it, you know, because I mean, if they can't explain it, they kind of just, all right, whatever, especially down here. It's all right. It's just another thing in the woods, but you got hunters down here that say, okay, there are things that, yeah, I've heard multiple uh, hunters wise, you know, I used to be in a, we had a, uh, we were in a still hunting club uh, a couple years ago and they were talking about, and, and I remember they would always say there, you know, there's just some things in the woods that are better left unexplained. So I don't well, know what you they know, meant by that, but. You know, it's only a couple of States over and you've got, and it's an ongoing thing. You know, you got the Falk, um, the Falk monster. And mm -hmm. to this day, people are still reporting, you know, they're seeing it. And actually uh, in the Southeast, uh, and Will, we've we've talked to a lot of people that are from that area, and there's there's just a lot of encounters there. So, really, kind of hoping that at some point, um, it becomes not such a taboo topic to talk about, and people are a little more comfortable. Because I, I got a hunch that a lot of stories, uh, credible stories and encounters, will come out of that area if if that ever happens. Yeah, and that's like I was telling you the other day. You know, we, we've got a lot of wood down here. There's a lot of wood. You know, I mean, like I was telling you, right behind my house is just 250 acres of just nothing but trees behind me. That's it. There's no houses in there. There's no, I mean, yeah, there's dirt roads like uh, that cut through that area. But behind me, there's just trees. Um, the the river that I was that I talk about the, the little Satilla, There's actually a wildlife management area that connects to that in that same area, and it cuts right through the middle of it. You know, it's all trees back there. It it that management area um, is in three different counties. A piece of that management area is in three different counties down here, and it's all. You know, it's all trees back there. There's no houses. There's no, I mean, people go back there to hunt, but you know. Now, is that private or is that public land? That's all, um, it, it's all public land. It's a wildlife management area. Okay. It's all monitored by the state. So, um, speaking on uh, the state, I know I told you the other day, we do have black bears down here. Um, but I was talking to my mother last year had a bear out at her property, had a black bear out at her property. And, you know, where we live, I don't know if y'all know where the Okefenokee Swamp is uh, here in Georgia. I don't know if y'all have heard of that, but it's a rather yeah, large, 
oh yeah, rather large swamp here in here in our state, and we're probably an hour from that, hour away. So, and bears they do my they do move around, and they do travel. So, and we had recently had a storm come through, and we're thinking that it, that storm may have displaced him or her or whatever it was, but it was out there. And I called the Georgia Department of Natural Resources to talk to them about how to get rid of it. And they sent somebody out there and called it and, and moved it back to the, the Okefenokee Swamp area. But he was telling me when I was talking to him that over here where I'm at, because I don't live in that area anymore, over here where I'm at, there is a military or a naval bombing range out here um, that couple years ago they found scratch marks on a pine tree nine foot up the tree but there were no scratches on the way up it was just nine foot up the tree so that's a big bear black bears don't get that big well no they don't um did anybody take pictures of the scratches or did you get any description of what they look like by chance or i i didn't not at the time. I didn't ask him. Um, but I'm sure that, you know, it, if you, you might can check around the uh, Georgia Department of Natural Resources website. They might have something on it. I don't know. But um, he was just saying that there were scratches at uh, nine foot up a tree. They were like, that's a big bear. He's like, that's a massive bear. And I was kind of like, yeah, that thing's real big. Then I thought to myself, there's black bears don't get that big at all. So, no, the, no, the, I mean, they certainly don't. I mean, I've seen trees that have been destroyed by black bears, but you know, typically it it's, yeah, it's about uh, four feet up or sometimes five, but it's not much, much more than that. Well, listen, exactly. Tate, I, I got to tell you, I, I really, this has just been a real treat listening to uh, not only your encounter, but just going back into your family's history and just sort of it kind of ties it all together um so listen stay in touch with us if you would and if anything new happens you know how to get a hold of us we'd like to hear about it right right okay um yeah definitely if i i'm i'm honestly i'm to the point now to where i think i'm gonna start asking around i do especially with hunters in this area and people who are outdoors a lot out you know, and that things like that, I'm going to start asking around because of the fact that the other day, like I said, my mother was talking to one of her friends and he had said something like that. And that just makes me wonder, you know, how many other people have seen things that just don't talk about it? You know, what, what if there are more people out there that have had encounters like mine, especially in the area that I fish and hunt in? How many more people, you know? So I'm definitely going to, I think I'm going to start reaching, reaching out and, and going into, you know, talking to people about it. So. Well, listen, I appreciate it. That is, um, yeah, I mean, that kind of opens the door. You never know where that goes. Exactly. So listen, I want to thank you, Tate, and um, stay in touch. And, and uh, we really appreciate it. Excellent, excellent information. Thank you.
I'm glad I was able to finally talk about it. In Bigfoot history, North Coast, British Columbia, summer and fall, 1962. During the summer, Bob Titmus found 1,200 yards of bipedal tracks in deep moss on Aristizable Island, much larger than human. In August, he found flat, 14-inch, five-toed tracks with a 42-inch stride in a creek bed on an island in Devastation Channel. In the fall, he found three sets of tracks, 14, 13, and 12 inches, approximately, on a beach on Swindle Island. Story from Orleans, California, 1952. This person's encounter was so shocking that he blocked it from consciousness for a time. He did recall the events, however, and this is what he related. I began to remember more and more of what happened. I had me a bad case of the jitters as the memory uncoiled. The first part of the story took me back to 1952, when I had gone to Orleans to start preliminary work on a logging operation with two men by the names of Lee Valeri and Josh Russell. One evening, Josh told me Lee had gone up to Happy Camp, but not having transportation back, wanted me to take the Mercury and go up and get him. I had driven the extremely crooked and dangerous road up there, but not being able to find him started back alone to Orleans. It had been raining very heavily, and after going back a few miles, I found there had been a slide across the road. There was a man with a flashlight there who told me I could still go back to Orleans by way of a detour across the river. He said it was a dirt road that went through Bear Valley and could come out at the mouth of Bluff Creek a few miles below Orleans. I had been driving slowly down this road for about 20 miles, I guess, sort of daydreaming, when I saw it. Dimly in the headlights, in the rain, was a shaggy, orangutan-like apparition of a human. For an instant, I had the impression the shaggy hair of the creature was a hoary blue-gray in the headlights. An ogre, I remember thinking. But the thing swiftly backpedaled off the road and behind a tree. I automatically passed it off as imagination and drove on by the spot. Suddenly, without warning, the car went into a violent and unreasonable skid. I brought the car back under control, but for some reason glanced into the rearview mirror. In the dim light of the taillights and license display bulb, I thought I could see a savage-looking face looking through the rear glass. I continued on, and when I looked again, there was no face. So again concluded it was imagination. I had gone another quarter mile, I guess, when across the road was a small six-inch sapling. I stopped the car and got out, intending to drag it aside if possible. Suddenly I heard the swift thud of flying feet of something coming down the road. Reality was upon me, and I remember cursing myself for not paying attention to what I had previously seen. It was the shaggy, human-like monster I had seen in the headlights. It at once started circling around me, snarling and acting very menacing. It kept this circling up for some time and once came up quite close, and I could see its face reflected by the headlights much better. The eyes were round and rather luminous. The hair on top of its rather low and rounded head was pretty short. Its eye teeth were far longer than a human's, 
Also the chest and upper part of its torso was rather bare of hair, and also leathery-looking. It wasn't too tall, not much more than my own five feet nine inches, although it had a stooped, long-armed posture. Then suddenly it changed tactics. It would stalk off down the road, but would come charging back, like a bat out of hell, when I started toward the car. The hour was late. The thing was becoming more and more menacing, and I was almost paralyzed by this time, paralyzed by fear. Suddenly a plan of escape, born out of desperation, popped into my mind. Since the monster seemed to think I couldn't get away, why not, when it went down the road again, playing cat and mouse, try to get in the car and smash through the sapling? This I did and sprang for the door of the car a dozen feet away. No sooner was I inside when there it was, trying to claw through the window. I jerked the car into gear, floored the accelerator, and can vividly remember the wet sapling glistening whitely in the headlights as the car slashed it aside. I remember the scream of rage and frustration it then gave. It was a curious, trumpeting sound, like the scream of a stallion and the roar of a mad grizzly. The car then felt as though it were being held back by something half-riding and attempting to stop it. But the powerful mercury proved too much for it, and after a couple hundred yards I felt no more resistance. To top this unbelievable experience off, believe it or not, I promptly forgot the whole experience. Then and there it went out of my mind. Not even the next day when Lee asked me if I had seen anything unusual on that road last night did I remember. He had come later from Happy Camp with another man hired to take him to Orleans. A few days later, an incident happened that should have brought the experience back, but didn't. Lee noticed a big dent in the grill of the car and asked me how it got there. I told him I didn't know. Incidentally, Lee told me that something had tried to push them off the road when they came through on the detour. He said there's something strange going on around here and let the matter drop. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there. <laughs>